This episode is brought to you by the Weekend University's Day on Human Nature online conference, taking place on Sunday, December 19th, 2021. This will be a full day of interactive talks with leading psychologists, professors, and neuroscientists exploring the hidden forces that drive human behavior. In the first talk, Dr. Graham Music will discuss the surprising links between attachment patterns, neurobiology, and altruism, and how you can use these insights to create more well-being in day-to-day life. The second lecture from Cambridge neuroscientist Dr. Hannah Critchlow will explore what the latest neuroscience research reveals about how much free will we really have and what you can do to consciously shape a better future, both for yourself and the wider world. And the final talk will be from Dr. Nancy Segal, who will speak on how the latest research in twin studies might finally help us resolve the nature versus nurture debate. By attending live, you can interact with world-class speakers and leading academics in real time, get your questions answered in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, and get lifetime access to the recordings and all available materials from the sessions. Additionally, the Weekend University guarantees an excellent learning experience. Therefore, if you attend and aren't fully satisfied with your experience, you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash human dash nature dash 2021. That's bit.ly forward slash human dash nature dash 2021 and use the discount code POD when registering. That's POD when registering, all one word. You can also find the link and the discount code in the show notes for this episode. Okay, everyone, welcome back to our third and final session today. I'm joined here with Professor Urshad Manji. The recipient, the recipient of Oprah Winfrey's first annual Chutzpah Award for Boldness, Rashad inspires and equips people to have honest, non-judgmental conversations about issues that polarize. Although she is an internationally best-selling author, her books are banned in many countries, which has intrigued a new generation to learn her, te- her techniques for effective communication. Rashad's latest book, Don't Label Me, is a, primer, is a primer on how to do diversity without inflaming the culture wars. As a fun fact, the comedian Chris Rock labels it as genius. A professor of leadership at New York University for many years, Rashad is now the founder of Moral Courage College. She also teaches moral courage with Oxford University's Initiative for Global Ethics and Human Rights. At Rashad's request, all proceeds from the session will go to the Maggie Fleming Animal Hospice in Scotland. You can learn more about the Moral Courage method at www.moralcourage.com and follow Rashad on Twitter at Urshad Manji. So Urshad, it's brilliant to have you here with us today. Um, I'm really excited about this. And whenever you're ready, we can just get started. Okay. I am ready, Neil. Thank you so much for the invitation. And hello, everybody. Um, I must tell you that I got up super early my time. I'm joining you from sunny Brooklyn, uh, New York City. And uh, I watched uh, much of the first presentation, um, all of the second presentation, Uh, And I was telling Neil um, before everybody came back on that he could not have organized the day on diversity uh, better than he did, because uh, not only uh, will I be offering you a very different take on diversity uh, than what you have heard um, in the first presentation, but also 
I will be extending the lessons of the second presentation so that we actually get hands-on um, in, uh, in this session. Let me, uh, I have three questions with which I would like to begin. The first one is with a simple yes or no, if you would please write this in the chat bar. Um, how many of you have attended the previous session, the one that came just before mine? And how many of you did not? So those of you who did, please write yes. Those of you who, who did not attend the previous session, please write no. Okay, so far, everybody has either written yes or written yes partially, which is very, very helpful to know. Okay, I see one no. Great. And a couple more yeses. So, based on this uh, non-scientific sampling, I will assume that um, some of what was taught in the previous session, uh, you'll be able to see the connection to it in this session. But let me assure those of you who did not attend the previous session, there's no worries at all. Uh, this is a self-contained session and you will um, understand. If I do my job well, uh, you'll understand uh, pretty much everything that I'll be trying to uh, convey and teach. Great. So here's my second question, which is not yes or no. It's open-ended. Why did you sign up for the day on diversity? What, what was it that made you want to attend uh, sessions on this particular theme? I'd love to know what motivated you, sheer interest, says Wendy. I'm trying to be better. Well, that's very noble of you, Marianne. Personal and professional life, sounds good. I just love it, Josiane says. Spice of life, yes. Develop my understanding. One says I'm a DEI champion at work. Uh, another in therapy and counseling, I'm often confronted with these issues. Pure curiosity, says another. I really wanted to understand this issue more and see how I can bring my skills. I love that, that you're looking to hone and refine your skills. And some of you will actually learn new skills in this session. Um, I'm studying in integrative psychotherapy and diversity. Uh, and in particular, racism is on the curriculum. Great. And Caroline says, or Carolyn, depending on how you pronounce it, I've always been interested in diversity, such an important subject. Rushmere says, I'm being asked to do work in this area and feel something is missing from the current approaches I'm seeing. That's interesting, Rushmere, because I feel the same way. Uh, this session may or may not address the void that you're detecting, um, but if it doesn't, I'd like to know that too, because I'm curious to see what you're able to clarify about what's missing. Okay, wonderful. Thank you all. And finally, which will really take us into the topic that I'd like to present today. I've noticed in the first session and in the second session, each of the presenters started off discussing diversity by focusing on labels. Um, in the first session, uh, Dr. Turner uh, talked about, um, you know, the categories that you may fit into. After all, his approach was intersectionality, and that approach locates us at a certain uh, intersection of a fixed grid. 
um, I have issues with that approach, which may or may not come up later. Um, but it certainly uh, lends itself to categories. And in the second session, uh, Dr. Weismark um, asked, you know, to uh, understand your identities first and foremost by dint of race and religion and gender, uh, sexual orientation and so forth. So here's my question for you. I'm not going to repeat that question. My question for you is, what do the labels that either you embrace for yourself or that others have assigned to you, what do those labels make people assume about you that isn't true? I'll give you an example. One of my labels is Muslim. People who have Muslims in their lives uh, sometimes find, in fact, often find, that Muslims have never had dogs as part of their families. And in some cases, it's because we've been raised to believe that dogs are what is known in Arabic as najis, which means dirty, and not just physically dirty, but spiritually dirty, so that if you touch one, uh, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, you're told uh, that now you are dirty and possibly even flirting with hell. Well, despite my own independent thinking, I was very afraid of dogs well into my 30s and 40s. And it was only after I had a, a physical uh, health crisis that a good friend of mine said, Irshad, you really have to understand that dogs have healing properties. And she encouraged me to adopt a dog. So I went out and adopted the uh, least threatening dog I could find. One that was old and blind. And while those labels were true about her, her name was Lily, she was so much more than old and blind. She did not live up to the baggage, the assumptions that go with those labels. She was feisty and sassy, an independent thinker in her own right. I've got stories to tell you. Oh, yeah. The point is this. I love dogs. And I love my faith. I'm a Muslim who loves dogs. You would never know that about me if I told you that I'm Muslim. So let me ask you, what is it about you that your labels, whether you embrace them or whether they're simply given to you by others all the time, what is it about you that your labels obscure? So Judy says, um, black female, the assumption is I'm angry and antagonistic, um, that I have a view about diversity, which means I have some issues with white people, uh, that I am a powerful voice for people's rights, especially civil rights. So obviously that last sentence is that this is how you see yourself and the label black tends to obscure that. Bisexual, Lucille says, uh, the assumption is that I'm unfaithful or promiscuous. Um, white British, um, uh, uh, Opsay, I think is how one would pronounce your name, that you're expected to be English when actually I'm Lithuanian, so I'm different. Um, Gemma says, a label I have that's wrong is blonde. The stereotype is dumb. And I'm actually 
a little intelligent. <laughs> Very humble of you, uh, Gemma, to slip in that word little. I'll bet you're a lot intelligent. Marilyn says, same here, seen automatically as angry black woman, always having to prove myself as not being angry. Yep, exactly. Um, and somebody else uh, wrote earlier on that, um, you know, labels uh, often distort us uh, more than they describe us. Um, and finally, Nicole says, as a feminist, some people assume that I hate men. Um, I'm guessing, therefore, Nicole, you don't hate men. And you're right. A lot of feminists don't hate men. They might hate some of the behavior uh, that uh, too many men in their lives have exhibited, but they don't hate the category of men. However, the way some of us practice our feminism can often feed those stereotypes. And we'll get to that a little bit later. So you can see in just this brief exercise and just this you know, uh, off the cuff activity that labels can be starting points for understanding others, but by no means are they finish lines. They ought to be um, starting points because our brains look for patterns. And so if you see me, you might see, you might see a person of color, a woman, um, someone who wears glasses, um, whatever that might mean to you. But that doesn't mean you know me. You only know of me, but you don't know me. And similarly, if I look at you instantly, my brain will register that you are X, Y, and Z. By the way, notice I say Z. I grew up Canadian. Um, you, so, so my brain automatically registers that. But that doesn't mean, number one, that the assumptions that go with those labels are true in your case. Moreover, it is almost certain that you are so much more than meets the eye. You'll see why I bring that up in, uh, in a few minutes. But now, let me uh, tell you a little bit about my backstory uh, so that you know where I'm coming from and even thinking about these things. My family and I are refugees uh, from Uganda in East Africa. We were uh, expelled by General Idi Amin, military dictator of Uganda, in 1972. And we landed in Canada. And that is where I grew up attending two kinds of schools. The regular uh, secular school of most North American children. And then on top of that, uh, every Saturday for several hours, at a stretch, I attended the Islamic religious school known as the Madrasa. And that is where I began to ask seemingly simple, but apparently inconvenient questions. One question in particular raised the ire of my teacher. I asked him, why can't we Muslims take Jews and Christians as friends? I mean, sir, Jews and Christians, according to the Quran, which is Islam scripture, 
uh, are fellow people of the book. So why are you instructing us that we can't take Jews and Christians as friends? Whereupon, my religious teacher ordered me to either believe or get out. Since this was not the first time that my questions were dismissed, I decided I'm not learning anything at the madrasa. I'm being ordered to believe something, but there is a difference between education and indoctrination. And so I got out. And that afternoon, I remember very clearly <laughs> Rather than take the bus home, I walked home several miles because I needed time to figure out how I was going to explain my expulsion to my mother. And when I reached home, mom had in fact received the call. I preempted any argument by saying to her, mom, hang on, I just need you to understand something. Simply because I left the madrasa does not mean I've left Allah. Just because I'm no longer in that building does not mean I have abandoned God. In other words, you can still be on a journey to the same destination without having to take the same approach as everybody else. And I want you to remember this point because of what I'm about to say going forward. You know, fast forward to today, the religious, uh, the intolerance, I should say, of religious fundamentalists that I experienced, I am now sadly seeing replicated by ideological fundamentalists. And the saddest part of this, for me at least, is that so much of this Puritanism is taking place in the name of diversity. I can't tell you how many times I've been made to feel that if I openly question a particular principle of the Black Lives Matter movement, I must be anti-black. And there's a label for such people, racist. Or how many times I've been reminded that if I uh, express disagreement with a specific strategy of the Me Too movement, it must be because you know, I've uh, internalized uh, society's hatred for women. And there's a label for that, misogynist. Never mind how often skeptics of labels, skeptics of diversity that is exercised as labeling, how many times they are labeled evil, insidious, uh, uh, or ignorant, and I'm not talking about white supremacists here, folks. I'm talking about people who even come from a place of liberal values, but who are 
uncomfortable with people being put into cubby holes since we are all so much more than meets the eye. How many times they are labeled negatively for taking that, uh, that position, which of course only reinforces their suspicions about the so-called diversity agenda. Here's what I'm really saying. Not only does labeling drive away potential allies, but it also drains diversity of its credibility because it exposes that this kind of inclusion winds up excluding diversity of viewpoint so that labeling people as them and uh, putting yourself into the group labeled us and creating that us versus them scenario makes diversity look and feel like a sham or worse, like a scam. I believe uh, that if the unifying potential of diversity is to be realized, we've got to turn the situation around. And that's what my work is meant to do. My work is all about incorporating diversity of viewpoint into the practice of diversity itself. So that you can both have your position, you don't have to dilute it, you don't have to compromise it, you can stand your ground, but at the same time, seek common ground. And if that sounds like a contradiction, I hope that today's session will unpack why it's not a contradiction. Standing your ground is about what you believe. Seeking common ground is about how you express what you believe. Do you make room for other points of view? And what do you do with those other points of view and the people who hold them? So, in order to turn this us against them, scenario around in any given situation, we need to develop the skills of moral courage. Moral courage quite simply means doing the right thing in the face of your fears. Now I know who's to say what the right thing is, particularly in as polarized a culture as we're living in today, both in the UK and in the US, and frankly, in many other countries besides. After all, in a polarized culture, one person's right thing is another person's abominable thing. So how can we know what's right? I'll get to that. But first, um, let me address the fear part of the equation. And to just remind you of what this, uh, this definition of moral courage is. Uh, Neil, could we bring up the slide that defines moral courage? There we go. Moral courage. Doing the right thing 
in the face of your fears. Now, social science repeatedly points out that what we human beings fear more than anything else is judgment, being judged. And of course, that implies being judged negatively, being shamed, being blamed, being thought weak or stupid or evil by those whose esteem we crave, particularly those within our own tribe. And again, define tribe as you will. People who look like us or people who think like us or people who sound like us or who are in the same profession or perhaps the same biological family, whatever tribe is most important to you, we will sometimes not even think once, let alone think twice, when we decide that just for the sake of keeping my status within that tribe, I'm not going to speak up, even when I know I'm uncomfortable with what is being said or done. And that's called groupthink. Indulging in groupthink. We do that again because we fear being judged by those whose respect we most want. What we fail to do as a result is expose ourselves to different points of view that could challenge and therefore clarify whether we do stand for the right thing or whether even if we believe we stand for the right thing, whether we are advocating it in the most effective way. That is why so many within the diversity and inclusion movements need to be engaging with those who take a very different view. Because if we're not engaging with the dissenters, then we can't be sure that we're spreading the message of diversity and inclusion in a way that speaks to them, that incorporates them, and that brings them on board to bring out the unifying potential of diversity. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's all well and good, Irsha, but you yourself have said it. There's a real risk of being negatively judged if I am seen to be engaging with people who are thought to be racists or who take a, a contradictory view. And I don't know that I want to take that risk. I mean, what's in it for me? You're asking me to, you know, sort of restore diversity's reputation so that it doesn't have to imply us against them. But there's a real danger to me if I do that. So speak to me as an individual now. What's in it for me? Here's what's in it for you. If you are passionate about anything, anything, I don't just mean in the diversity realm. It could be in the diversity realm, but really anything at all. 
your sports club, let's say, and you want somebody else to understand where you're coming from, the ironclad rule, law really, of human psychology is this. If you wish to be heard, you must first be willing to hear. In other words, you have to go first in the listening department. And this is where these skills of moral courage come into play. Skills that I'm going to teach you today. And again, it's not about being nice. It's not about making other people comfortable with their prejudices. It's not even about being civil. Listen, I was a history major at university. I know that much harm has been done under the guise of civility. So it's not about any of these things, the skills of moral courage. Learning these skills is, it, is about becoming an effective communicator. An effective communicator, especially for diversity. Because again, if you demand purity while you preach diversity, the contradiction will be glaring. And you will not bring on board those who see that contradiction. And they won't call it a contradiction. They'll call it hypocrisy. So um, I'm going to apply uh, an example of how the skills of moral courage, which I will get into, can work both for standing your ground and for seeking common ground. Come back with me, uh, metaphorically, to the madrasa and the day that I was uh, kicked out of it. Now, if my teacher wanted me to stay in the school. He wouldn't have given me an ultimatum. He would not have ordered me to either stay and swallow what I consider to be a lie that I cannot take Jews and Christians as friends if I'm to be a good Muslim or to leave. That was a, non, that was a false choice as far as I was concerned. But in that moment, I had to make the choice. And so I left. His loss. If he was smarter about education, he would have asked me questions. Questions like, why are you troubled uh, by what I am teaching? I would have told him why I'm troubled. And he would ask, have asked me more questions based on what I would have told him. It may not have kept me in the school, but ordering me to leave or believe a lie was sure to not keep me at the school. Bad communication method on his part. Now, when I got home, I mentioned to you, right, that I said to my mom, Ma, just because I'm no longer at the madrasa does not mean I'm no longer with God. That's a false choice. What I didn't tell you is that she didn't buy my logic. She did argue with me. 
And she argued with me over several weeks, but she knew instinctively that if she told me that I was wrong, that I was a bad Muslim for allowing myself to be expelled, she knew instinctively that there's the risk. I'll give up on Islam altogether. Because who wants to constantly be labeled as a heretic? If you're a heretic, you may as well not believe. So instead, my mother asked me questions. She asked me, why does it matter that your questions are taken seriously? And I said, mom, it's because I love my faith. I love Islam. More importantly, I love God. And I'm wanting to deepen my faith, not reject it. And asking questions allows me to go deeper. Oh. You see, my mother never thought about it that way. She was, is, part of a generation that did not allow questions. And so she assumed, and that's the key word, assumed, that if I was questioning Islam, it's because I'm rejecting it. And she felt threatened by that. But when she realized that it's not because I'm rejecting it, it's because I want to develop my faith more. She came to see that actually we're on the same page. We're working for the same destination. We're just approaching it in different ways. And that is when my mother's emotional defenses came down. And she realized there may be a solution here in which both of us get what we want. She asked me, since you're no longer welcome at the madrasa, what are you now going to do every Saturday for eight hours since now you have those hours free? And she said, I want you to be thoughtful about this. If you want to deepen your faith, what are you going to do with those eight hours? Well, obviously, uh, going to the Shopping mall was out of the question. That wouldn't deepen my faith. Uh, going roller skating, uh, that wouldn't necessarily deepen my faith. Playing pinball, nope. What I did is, I went to the public library and I read everything I could about belief systems, cultures, religions, including my own. And by the way, that is when I discovered that, in fact, Islam has its own tradition of independent thinking, of reasoning and debate and dissent. But I would have never been taught that tradition at the madrasa. I had to go talk about paradox. I had to go to a secular institution in order to save my faith from my religious school. I love that paradox. And that's what life is, isn't it? It's a series of paradoxes. If only we care enough, we trust each other enough, 
to engage with our questions. So you can see that my mother diffused the us versus them uh, paradigm by starting with questions and questions about where I was coming from, not where she was coming from. Let me now transition into the moral courage method. The moral courage method of practicing diversity is as follows. Even if you don't know anything else about the person who disagrees with you, here's one thing you can count on. She, he, or they are plurals. Everybody is multifaceted, more than meets the eye. And so you want to start off by acknowledging that commonality. Because when you can start with a commonality, that instantly builds trust. And building trust is necessary in order to uh, till the soil for uh, engaging in the harder uh, terrain to follow. Okay? So, step number one, before diving into difference, pinpoint the commonality. Even if that simply means that you say to your so-called other, um, there's so much more to us, each of us, than what we can see right now. And so, rest assured, uh, I'm not going to judge you uh, based on your position uh, about this or that issue. That is not the totality of who you are. And I get that about you. I hope we can agree that you feel the same about me. Pinpoint the commonality. Step number two. Now, before stating anything about your position on the issue, ask questions about where your other is coming from. And sincere questions, not judgmental questions. Questions like, um, how does this issue make you feel? Or what am I missing about where you're coming from? Or can you help me understand why uh, you believe this? Or if you already know about some of their experiences, was this experience uh, crucial to what makes you believe what you believe now? Notice that these are open-ended questions. They're not right or wrong questions. They come from a place of curiosity, not judgment. So that's the second step. Ask questions, sincere questions, about where the other is coming from before making any statements about where you're coming from. Step number three, listen. Listen to your other's response. And listen to understand 
not to win. Dr. Weismark in the previous uh, session pointed out that so often in conversations about diversity, but we know it's conversations about so much more than diversity, in any conversation where emotions run high, it is only too easy for that discussion to devolve into debate. Fact is, though, that not every discussion has to be a debate. If it becomes a debate, then what happens is you stop listening because now your mind is full of uh, noise, the noise that makes you and your other want to one-up one another. Noise like, oh yeah, well, what about this? Or noise like, um, you know, well, how do you know that's true? Or, ah, I see where you're going. What you're really saying is, with that snarky tone, right, in your head, that's what's happening. Or outrage. Do you realize what you're doing when you think that? You're feeding this kind of discrimination or that kind of discrimination. These are judgments. And they will only stop the process of listening to one another. Now, I see that Kat has said, I'm struggling with this if I'm honest. It feels like being asked to listen to those whose beliefs or viewpoints may be harmful to us. If someone holds harmful or discriminatory beliefs, it's not the job of anyone who is the target of that to listen or educate. Maybe I'm missing something. Kat, um, you raise an important uh, objection. I don't dismiss that objection at all. And I'm going to address it. I want you, though, to withhold judgment about the moral courage method for just a bit longer. I promise you that I will address your um, concern. And it's a good one. But ultimately, I think you are missing something, uh, which I hope to be able to bring out a few minutes from now. The fourth and final step. So first, you've pinpointed a commonality that we're all more than meets the eye and that I won't judge you based on the uh, position that you take about this or that issue. You're not the totality of that issue. Second, that um, you start the conversation in earnest by asking questions about where your other is coming from, not making statements about where you are coming from. Third, uh, that you listen with the intention to understand, not to win, because not every discussion has to become a debate. And in fact, if it becomes a debate, the listening stops, because now each of you is out to win and therefore to get one another. There's a fourth and final step. And that is after you have listened to understand, ask more questions. Yes, I know. What about my turn? When do I get to speak about where I'm coming from? You do get to speak about where you're coming from. But first, ask more questions. And questions based on what you've heard from your so-called other. 
not questions based on any agenda that you may have going into the conversation. So, for example, if your other has talked about a particular experience or set of experiences that have shaped their position, ask them, has that happened again recently? Or when you think about that experience, does it still bring up the same emotions that it did the first time around? Ask sympathetically, because remember, you are here to build trust, to understand, and ultimately to get information with which you can then reframe your own perspective in a way that finally has a shot at being heard. I've been in situations, by the way, where I practice these techniques and my other has not asked me questions about where I'm coming from. But instead of assuming ill will on their part, uh, I have realized that sometimes they're just shocked that I even cared enough to wonder about their life because so often they haven't been given that kind of respect. So they've come into the conversation burning for a fight. Or that like questions have actually inspired so much more thought in them that they're now kind of caught up in this world of thought that they've got. So sometimes you have to be proactive at this point and say, you know, thanks for letting me know about where you're coming from and about sharing your backstory. Do you mind if I share some of my backstory with you? What you've done with these four steps is you've lowered the emotional defenses of your other. You have showed them that you care enough to wonder about what has shaped them. You've humanized yourself to them. And you set the culture and the tone of the conversation so that far from giving away your power, you've actually claimed your power by leading the culture of the conversation. Now, I'm going to read a couple more comments, and then we're going to get into some practical stuff. Okay. Gemma writes, opinions aren't fact. Nobody is right and nobody is wrong. It's just a view or belief. Honest opinion should be backed up with evidence or research. This is my opinion on opinions. I've learned a lot by listening to other points of view, even if they, even if, uh, they haven't cohered with mine. Sorry, I lost the um, uh, last sentence of that because other people are chiming in. Monica says, I think I understand and like your point. Sadly, though, not many people are able to go uh, are able to do that process, though I feel it exactly quite deep and it will potentially uh, uh, sort of under, um, you know, lift the lid on something interesting for the person who seems so judgmental towards others. Toby writes, you've put together a very sophisticated, nuanced thesis with much depth. However, this would require a particular level of psychological maturity and critical thought and 
uh, emotional self-awareness, and as you say, moral courage, irrespective of it being an admirable and even desired mode of being, is it reasonable to ask for a society and epoch such as ours to display such virtues on a grand scale? And Julie writes, I love this technique, and it feels that you are broadening their perspective on their own situation, meaning your other, which may help shift their opinion. Is this your intention? If so, if so, she writes, isn't that a bit sneaky? Mwah. Love everything that you guys have written. And let me quickly address and then try to show that what I am teaching is by no means impossible. Is it hard? Yeah. To the extent that we have to acknowledge that the way we human beings are wired uh, is that we have brains that are impulsive and that constantly lead to conclusions about each other and that we judge more than we hear and that we are constantly scanning for threats because that is how we evolve from hunter-gatherer times. So sure, what I'm teaching is hard. Is it impossible? Not in the least. And you're going to see just a little later on in this session what happens or more to the point can happen when you apply these sorts of teachings. By the way, if you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I might be willing to do this after all. I'm here in this session. I've chosen uh, to take an interest in these ideas. But what about everybody else? May I suggest, don't worry about everybody else. Worry about you. Worry about whether you're role modeling the kind of engagement that you would like to see from others. Worry about whether, as Gandhi put it, you are being the change that you wish to see in this world. And make no mistake, when you go first, you'll find that your behavior is more contagious than your skepticism right now uh, may be allowing you to believe. And again, you'll see a bit of evidence of that a little bit later on in our session. Okay, so with that, I would like uh, to hear from uh, three people who, by the way, have already been lined up. These are people who have been asked to come to this session with a particular dilemma in their lives. Uh, tension in a particular relationship. And I am going to walk them through the process of communicating across lines of disagreement. I'm going to help them apply the moral courage method. You should know two things. One, that doesn't mean that they're going to be able to fix the tension in their relationships right away. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes, no, we human beings are complicated and we're not always uh, going to uh, act, uh, you know, uh, uh, predictably. So, again, this is a journey that you take for yourself, not because you think this is going to change somebody else's mind. And by the way, that's why uh, this uh, method is ultimately not manipulative. You can't control other people. And this is not about controlling them. This is about regulating and governing 
yourself. That's the first thing you should know. The second thing you should know is I have no idea what questions or uh, scenarios are going to be brought to me. None whatsoever. So I'm going to work on the fly here and see what can be achieved in our brief time together. Okay. So um, participant number one, could we get you on camera? Okay, Eileen, I'm just uh, inviting your, or turning on your webcam and microphone now. Um, you should get access in the next 10 seconds or so. Um, hi. hi there, Eileen. Thank you for, for, you know, stepping up to the plate here. Okay, so tell us about your situation. Hey, situation is um, working on uh, with a group and uh, we can say, call it a project. We have to develop um, uh, a, document, a document, put it that way. Um, it comes to the fore that I feel with a certain member that it wasn't really... Um, consistent with the whole with the way we were working towards our aims and objectives for the better um it felt like as you said the nolan principles uh, there was like lack of selflessness it was seemed to be geared towards where the leader felt it to be or you know the the, the, the um the head of the group um so yes i challenged <laughs> and uh, yeah, okay. I was listening to you. I probably did it wrong. I, I asked questions where I came from. I went. I did point two instead of point one, um, and we had a good talk. And we got down to understanding it from personal reasons, and that it, you know, but it wasn't. I didn't feel like there was acceptance that it had influenced the document that we were writing. Um, so I then felt very against my own principles of working. You know, I like to make sure everybody's views are on board and we are promoting uh, inclusion for everyone. And um, right. so I, I got a couple of my recommendations through, but put it this way, um, when it finally came out, the document had a title, which I find quite difficult to, to agree with. Um, and it felt to me a bit one-sided. So <laughs> I sort of abstained from the agreement of the document and just let it go to grip a vote, put it that way. I, I thought that's the fairest sure. way to do it. And it's interesting when you say about group think, um, nobody wanted to be against it. You know, it's right. a very much useful document. And so it went out. Um, I, I was happy with some of the recommendations mm -hmm. and happy that people liked it in parts of it. Um, but since then, and even before then, I really, maybe I was more sensitive after it, I started to realize I was treated differently. Everybody oh. in the group. Uh, how so? Hmm? How, how were you treated if differently? I made it, if I, when this project passed, or this, this type of uh, document project we're working on, that passed and we we're just having our meetings and I came up with something or an idea, it was sort of seen quite negatively. Um, as if I was a troublemaker and all I was doing was like encouraging more, more thoughts, more thing, 
um, ideas into working for the best for everyone. Um, so as time went on, I think, you know, in a couple of months, I struggled with myself thinking, do I not able to stay quiet? Maybe easier. Mm. Um, and I remembered my early days when I joined the group, I was a bit um, nervous about joining a group in diversity because I understand it can be very conflict. And even I, I, I train in diversity, but really, mm. I wow. really wanted to get away from community um, feeling, if that makes sense. Um, you know, the invites, and I thought we would be at a higher level. And I just started to be more quieter. Uh, and uh, I did do things on the other end, which, you know, you talk about um, knowing your worth and all this. So I, I did stand up to the other part of it. I knew there'd be other challenge coming up when I said that I was going to um, participate in a in activity that might have conflict with the group, but I declared it. And strangely enough, there seems to be a sort of respect in that. And I'm doing well. Um, I think members of the group are coming more on board. And I, although I've been quieter, they've been voicing their opinions. But I'm at a stage where, I don't know, uh, it could change. You know, I... So Eileen, I, I, apologies for for uh, for interjecting here, only because we have such limited time together. Let me quickly ask you: um, Why do you think you are now in a better place with the group than you were before? What did you do, or what did you change that allowed other people to see you in a new or different light? I think it's just my passion in my work. Uh, I'm very strong on race equality, and um, no one's going to stop me doing it. I have to do it. And if I have to be on something or support it, I will do it regardless of any other group. Um, if I think it's for me better. So I, you know, I just put myself forward. I declared the conflict of interest and I feel that was slight, a slight turning point. Oh, okay. So it, it, what, here's what I'm hearing that the group uh, may have, come to understand, kind of like my mother came to understand about me, that you speak up not because you want to reject uh, other people's ideas, but you speak up, at least in the case of the conflict of interest, um, out of integrity. Yeah. And that people can respect that because they now appreciate that you have a motive that is different and more constructive than they may have assumed before. Does that yeah. does that ring true to you? I think so, or maybe yeah, I think so. I think they just suddenly saw me as me, not me part of right. the group. This is me. I would be like this anyway, <laughs> but maybe they never got to understand that part. Well, this is this is what I'm curious about. I'll I'll, I'll ask you this question, and then we'll move on to the to the second uh, scenario. Um, you mentioned right at the beginning of your story that you may have gotten off on the wrong foot by stating where you're coming from yeah. uh, right away. In all honesty, so please don't say anything that you think I would want to hear. I want to hear where you're coming from. In all honesty, if you had started your, I'm going to say the word dissent. If you had started your disagreement by first saying, you know, I know, folks, that we are 
uh, part of a group that wants the best for this project. And that, um, you know, everybody here is thinking uh, and contributing as best as we know how uh, to get, you know, to get the most from this project and get the most out of each other. So please know that I respect all of you for that. And I hope you respect me for that too. If you had started off with this uh, tip of the hat to our common ground, do you think that that might have helped people understand that you're not disagreeing because you want to create trouble? Yes, I think so. I think that's the way I should approach the, uh, the person that, you know, that I, I thought, I'm going to have to say this, <laughs> uh, had differing views, put it that way, um, that, that mm -hmm. didn't seem to be in totality. Um, I shouldn't have pointed that out. I think I should have pointed out, you know, the whole, the whole um, use of the document first, but I sort of asked about that first and then went back to, you know, step one, second way. Sure. I did come to the commonality, sure. you know, saying that we were all part of group and all this stuff. Um, I did it the other way around. Yeah. I asked questions first. Yeah. And by the way, Aileen, I will tell you that there are times when I make that mistake still, that there is something so emotional, uh, something that has triggered my emotions, that I instantly go to that place of disagreement and only realize, only later, quickly later, but nonetheless later realize, shoot, I should have first, you know, stated that uh, I'm not going to judge you based on, you know, uh, your views about this or that. And I hope that you, you know, you can uh, give me that courtesy as well, right? So just know that it's not easy to remember mm -hmm. starting with mm -hmm. commonality. But I will say this too, the more you do it, the more of a habit it becomes. And that's the beauty of habits, for better and for worse, good and bad habits, is that they're no-brainers. You do it because it just is what you do, right? You want to get to that point where you have practiced this technique often enough that it just becomes second nature. And um, that, I hope, is... Um, why for the first little while you may want to have a little cheat sheet, you know, uh, at your desk, now home desk, home office desk, right? Uh, just to you remind yourself of these four steps before entering into what might be a contentious conversation. But I guarantee you, you practice this a month, uh, it will become part and parcel of how you communicate. And having taken that journey myself, I can't begin to tell you how often I've sort of wiped the metaphorical sweat off my brow afterwards saying, God, that could have been so bad, but it actually went well, you know, because I made sure that my other, or in your case, others, um, didn't need to feel threatened by what I was about to say. Thank you very much, Eileen. Thank you. Best of luck okay, to you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. And now, uh, Neil, you'll call up scenario number two. Us um, should be coming Great. in the next few, few seconds.
Can you hear me? I can, Ross. Can you hear me? Yeah, all good. Excellent. Um, so my scenario is uh, slightly different than that. Uh, there's me and two other directors of, of our organization, and we basically run outdoor events, so music events and, and, and whatnot. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to put us as X, Y, and Z. Um, I wasn't born in Canada, but uh, so I'm, I'm, X. I'm X, X as, as the founder, and Y and Z are the co-founders. Okay. So, so we, were, we were trying to organize a socially distanced event uh, in the summer, rightly or wrongly. Um, and we were, we were having a, a debate on how we should manage the audience at the stage. And I had, I had my ideas as X, the leader, I suppose. Um, and Y and Z had a different idea. And this caused quite a bit of conflict on one particular day where Z basically said, uh, well, I'll make the call. I'll make okay. the decision. And Z is one of the co-founders, not the founder. Yeah, I, okay. I, I, I'm the founder. Gotcha. So you're right. Okay. So I kind of was taken a bit of back by that. Um, so X and Y uh, were school friends from teenage years, and Y and Z became very friendly at university and in more recent years. So the scenario was basically that uh, Y and Z had agreed that they were both against X, uh, and then it was reported back widely, more widely to our committee that because Z said, I'll make the call, which I did take personally because it felt like a personal attack, right. um, that, I that I, I was wrong to take it personally, and my reaction was basically I got up and left and yeah. didn't try and resolve initially. Um, and so I had to deal with that kind of conflict going forward. Mm -hmm. so we've, we've kind of dealt with that now um, and we, we went my way because um, because it was the better way to go. Right. Um, and but it's just it's how, how to deal with that going forward because Y and Z would be closer now than uh, X and Y would have been. Um, but X, somebody has to make the decisions. This is, okay, so, so Ross, let me say that this is a great scenario because I'm not going to, what, what we're going to address at this very moment is not what you could have done better or what uh, Z could have done or Z could have done better. No, we're going to now go forward and we're going to address how do you begin this conversation with why and Z so that they understand that we all, the three of us, you, Y, and Z, need to be on the same page about how to avoid this breakdown in communication for other scenarios that come up, right? Okay, so let's say you are thinking, how am I going to start this conversation with Y and Z? You've heard what I've already had to say about the four steps. Tell us, how would you apply? Step number one, find the commonality before diving into difference. Um, I suppose it's, it's, it's hard to foresee, depending on, on a particular scenario as such. I mean, the commonality 
of our events or festivals or whatever is the overarching commonality is there. Uh, I, I don't know. I, um, I know what you're saying, right? It depends on what the situation is, right? Yeah. yeah. The outcomes, we're usually agreed on the kind of outcomes. It's maybe just the method of how, of how we go about Sure. Great. You've just nailed it. You're agreed on the outcomes. It's just the method that yeah. will differ. Exactly right. Exactly right. That is how you can start it all. Right? That, that guys, I have full confidence that we all want the very best event and that we're all agreed on this, this, and that outcome, that this is what we're working towards. So please know that I am with you on that aspiration. Yeah. I am, however, concerned that the next time we disagree about how to get to that destination, our communication will break down the way it did last time. And I'd like to have a conversation about how to ensure that communication does not break down. Okay. Now, let's go to step number two. Ask questions, sincere questions, not gotcha questions, not judgmental questions. Ask sincere questions about where the other, in this case, Y and Z are coming from, rather than explaining yourself to them. Okay, yeah. so what could you now ask Y and Z in this um, in this uh, conversation we've just started with them? What could you ask them? Uh, why 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 do you feel uh, your method is 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 the best? I suppose. Well, now remember, remember though, Ross, we're not having a conversation with them about the next uh, event. We're having a conversation with them at this point about how to ensure that our communication does not break down the next time we have a disagreement about method. Yeah. Right. So, so uh, I don't think it makes sense in this conversation to ask them, why do you think your method is better? Yeah. Maybe, maybe the way to go about it, you tell me if this makes sense. Maybe the way to go about it is to say, look, the last time we disagreed about method, I got up and walked away. How did you guys feel when that happened? Yeah. Remember, right? You want to ask people how they feel because it shows that you care about, you know, about uh, the heart that they bring to this work too, yeah. right? And you're making yourself vulnerable, obviously. Yeah. yeah. But remember that you're also setting the tone and the culture of the conversation by going first in the yeah. listening department. I think part, part of my issue is that I feel that I, I kind of do that, you know. Okay. And, and this one particular instance uh, just felt like something a wee bit deeper that, that might come up in the future. Uh, I don't know. It's hard, quite hard to explain. But I, I know. I, I get it. It's like I there's know. so many... I work with quite a large team. There's, there's over, you know, there could be over 50 people involved in a festival uh, that you're right. bouncing ideas, ideas off. So you are constantly listening and questioning. And, and, but at some points, there has to be a decision made. Mm-hmm. And that's then when that, at that point, uh, it's, 
which is sometimes you got to go with the decision, right? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Ross, I get that. So I had to sit down with those two guys and go, right. So conflict resolution is actually on our agenda. The three of our agenda for December. We're going to be talking about this. Right. That's how to how to put that method out to not just me. Um, and, and, you know, Julie has just asked, do you have a decision-making process, Ross, something that you've agreed together? You know, Julie, I see the conversation that Ross and I are trying to create right now as a conversation that can help the guys, uh, the, the three guys, X, Y, and Z, uh, come up with a decision-making process. So, Ross, again, in the interest of time, um, let me suggest this. I know you say that, you know, it's hard for you to ask the question like, how did it feel for you guys when I got up and left? Um, I realize that I don't know all that there is to know about that situation or even about your relationships uh, with the two co-founders. But let me tell you why I think it's important that you be willing to ask a question like, how did you guys feel? Because... You want to get out of the two co-founders all of the information that they would otherwise be either too ashamed, too embarrassed, or frankly, too fearful to let you in on. By asking them to open their hearts, what you're saying is we can analyze the situation six ways from Sunday, but that's not what's important here because all of us will have a different analysis. I'll think I was right because of how you guys approached the situation and it triggered me and it made me stand up and walk away. So, you know, I think I was right, but you guys may think I was wrong, right? The point is this, Ross, you first have to touch your co-founder's hearts in order for their emotional defenses to come down. And only when their emotional defenses come down Will they have the bandwidth up here to hear where you are coming from? Like it or not, the science of polarization is this. That we human beings think first and foremost emotionally, not rationally. We think with our hearts, not with our heads. And so if you can... Acknowledge that by asking the other about how they feel. You will find that there's a certain sense of relief in them. Like, oh my God, first of all, this is not a gotcha question. It's not a stumper. You know, I'm not being asked to say what is the square root of, you know, 1,936. I'm not being put in the hot seat to say, you know, either I'm wrong or I'm right. No, I'm being asked to just speak from my heart and therefore speak honestly. Ross, when you got up, says co-founder Y, I was really pissed off. I was really pissed off. And you might ask then, okay, why? Well, because Ross, I felt like we're in this together. And if you're going to just up and walk away, then how can we even have a conversation about these issues? Yeah. Okay. Fair. Now, the instinctive thing would be for you to jump in and say, well, let me tell you about how I felt and therefore why I walked away. Not yet, Ross. Not yet. 
Okay. I know. I know. But remember, you're trying to get more information out of co-founders Y and Z so that you can integrate that information into how you respond to them. Yeah. So maybe the next question is, uh, they said, well, you know, I felt pissed off. And you're like, okay, why? Well, because how can we even have a conversation if you're just going to leave the room? Why don't I just leave the room? Maybe then, again, if they said something like that, maybe then you ask, okay, um, let me ask you, has that experience made you wonder why I left the room? Did it? Did you think about what might have been going on in me um, to make me leave the room? Chances are they'll say no, because again, they're steeped in their own feelings, right? But this is now a way simply by asking them that question that you have just set the table for you to then say, may I tell you where I was coming from? Yeah. Right. And then again, we can move forward. But the fact that you started it off by wondering what is going on inside of them instantly says, I really do care about you guys. I'm not going to up and walk away from this conversation. So you can let down your guard. Yeah. I'm in it to help all of us solve it. So that when the next disagreement comes around, whatever the event may be, we have a process that we can work through in order to arrive at a, uh, at a consensus about where to from here. Yeah. Well, I should try that in the next couple of weeks. Okay. And please let me know how it goes. Okay. Yeah. I'll make sure that you've got my email address. Super. Thank okay. you. Great. Thank you, Ross. Okay. All right. And then, um, Let's see. And then Louisa, as we get to the third and final scenario, Louisa McDonald writes, quite often people are stuck on a narrative when they feel they haven't been heard. Louisa, that's exactly right. This is exactly right. You see, solutions can never be lasting if the so-called other side does not feel heard. You can impose a solution on them, but make no mistake, by imposing it, you will have made them perceive themselves to be humiliated. And that is when somebody who's out to create trouble, dare I mention a certain now former U.S. president, can then tap into that feeling of humiliation and turn it into something more than it ever needed to be. The reason for ensuring that your so-called other feels heard is so that whatever solution is uh, created will endure. It's how my mother ensured that whatever solution I came up with to deepen my faith without having to go back to the madrasa, that that solution would endure because I was heard. And Baron writes, also, you may ask yourself, why did that affect you so much? What did that behavior trigger in you that you had to leave the room? Exactly. But again, it's about timing, right? You can explain 
to co-founders why and said what you know uh what why you were so triggered but if you start that way you make it about you you make it about your truth you make it about your narrative that's the trap make it about the other's narrative so that they'll open up about where they're coming from and you can ensure you integrate that information in your response and that way you will have a fighting shot of being heard that didn't exist before okay last scenario here we go okay we're just we're just inviting Jan into the room here now it should be a couple of minutes Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you yeah, hear me? Perfect. Excellent. Thank you. Go ahead. So uh, I had a friend who's been a long-standing friend of many years, um, and she sent me a very long sort of paper article from some German doctor saying this was back at the beginning of the pan pandemic, early days, saying, you know, Pandemic is a conspiracy, created the virus in China. They've got a cure, but they're not releasing it. Da-da-da-da-da, you know, um, giving lots of references, but it turned out to be rubbish. And she said, look, Jan, do you mind having a look at this and tell me what you think, you know, if you, what your opinion is? And because it, you know, then said, you know, if you buy a special vitamin C preparation, this will stop you getting COVID, you know, and all that they're selling. Stuff. Right. So, you know, I took a look at it. I spent a couple of hours, a long thing, followed up most of the references, which turned out to be just rubbish. And uh, then I phoned her. I said, so, you know, I've taken a look at this thing. I said, look, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an expert, but it doesn't, my opinion, if you want my opinion, my opinion is it sounds just like conspiracy theory. It doesn't sound like any truth. You know, I've been reading the papers and the Guardian and the BBC and the New York Times and, you know, listening to the experts that they interview and nobody's mentioned this stuff. And in fact, they mentioned this stuff as rubbish. So I said, I don't think it's right. And I, I just said, look, one of the things I checked who this guy was, I Googled him. He's just some doctor. He's not an epidemiologist, not a virologist, nothing. I said, normally, you know, that's what I do. I check the sources. And I said, I've checked the references and they're rubbish. So that's what I said. And she said, oh, you, but you sure he gives all these references. Yeah, I followed them up that, you know, they don't prove what he says. So that was that. And she said, okay. And then half an hour later, she sent me a long message uh, saying, you know, I'm really upset how you treated me. You're so arrogant. You treated me as if I'm a total idiot. Uh, you said, you know, that, I, that you look at sources as if I know nothing and I don't know how to do this stuff and I've got an MA and da, 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 da. And it went on like that. And, you know, I wrote back and said, hey, you know, <laughs> I, I, those things that you say, I, you know, I didn't say you were stupid or anything. You know, you said, I, I didn't say any of those things. You're, in, you're interpreting it that way. And I said, uh, you know, you asked me for my opinion. I gave my opinion. That was my opinion. You know, what, what, you know, I said, if you don't agree with me, when we don't agree, but you friends can disagree. I don't see why it's such a big thing, you know, that, that you know, I don't agree that it's a good thing. Anyway, she went back and, you know, she went and then finally it mellowed a bit, the messaging, and we said, okay, let's have a chat. To see if we can, because she's a well, it's shame to lose a friendship of, you know, 20 years or something of this. Yeah, sure. You know, right. if we can talk it out, that would be great. So we made a time uh, for a couple of days later when she said she had time. As that, the next day she cancelled that time, said she was too busy. I wrote back and said, well, I've, I'm pretty flexible. Just give me a new time and 
you know, I'm here, just tell me when suits you if you're busy, you know, whenever suits you, I'm, I'm up for this. Anyway, she didn't contact me. Four weeks later, she contacted me about something else. And I wrote back and said, well, you know, we haven't resolved this other thing. I don't think I can do it with other stuff because I was at the time chairman of her charity, a small charity started. And I said, I can't do that unless we resolve this personal stuff. But, I, you know, let's talk. Tell me when you can. Never heard from her again. And then a little bit, some time after, it was a few months ago, and then recently it was her birthday and it came up on Facebook. So I wished her happy birthday and thought, well, you know, I'll show I'm still open to it. And she went, thanks, and that was it. And I didn't chase her up because I felt, look, we've made this thing. She was the one that cancelled. I was the one that said, look, anytime, just tell me when. You, you're the busy one. I'm going to be flexible. So I didn't feel like chasing up. And also, I, to be honest, I felt, I thought, if she's not able to have a mature conversation, then I'm not sure I want to carry on in the front, you know, because we're never going to be able to resolve any of this. Sure. So, so I just, I've left it. You know, um, I would feel exactly the same way as you feel right now. I would leave it to uh, because the ability to have uh, mature conversations is key, um, at least for me. It might be different from other people participating in this seminar, but for me and evidently for you, it's key to having a fulfilling, reciprocal, sustainable relationship with someone. Uh, it's part of what is pleasant about friendships. Um, and if you don't have that, one wonders then whether that person really is the kind of friend that you want in your life. So I'm with you, Jan. It's, is it Jan, by the way? Yeah, thank you. I'm with you on that. At the same time, I will say that calling somebody's truth rubbish or anything akin to that can feel very uh, slighting. It can feel dismissive. And remember I just moments ago, I used the word humiliating. Mm -hmm. It can feel humiliating. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that that was not your intention at all. After all, as you rightly pointed out, she asked you for your opinion. You gave her your opinion. What's the problem? The problem was not your opinion, Jan. The problem was how you expressed it and therefore how it made her feel. And uh, if, if I were in your shoes and I realized that what she is sending me is just garbage, um, as in not based in fact, I would first of all have said to her, you know, um, I'm so glad you're thinking about this stuff. And I really appreciate the fact that, you know, you're trying to um, help me uh, protect myself and the people around me uh, from this virus. Um, thank you for that. Now, I've looked into these links. Um, honestly, there's just no evidence that any of this stuff works. Um, so you ask me for my opinion. I'll give it. I'm just I'm not um, I'm not convinced about this. Um, but, you know, if there's something else down the road. Um, that you think I should know about, um, you know, let me know mm. and kind of leave it at that. Now, again, is that too much work to think about that? Um, first of all, as I said to the, one of the previous participants uh, who gave us their scenario, the more you get into the habit, right, of, um, of, again, finding the common ground that she cares about you 
and you're uh, appreciative of the fact that she cares about you, uh, which is why she's sending you this stuff, um, that, that you know, takes a habit to really just kind of make as part and parcel of the way you communicate. Um, so, so it doesn't have to be hard. You just have to remember to do that in the beginning of taking on these methods, and then it will become second nature for you. Um, you may think, though, yeah, yeah, but I don't think she's worth that kind of time, Irshad. And that may be. So, okay. If, if you feel that somebody with whom you have a disagreement is just not worth the investment, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, oh, no, Jan, she is worth the investment. Maybe you don't value the relationship or the friendship as much as, you know, uh, as much as she would want you to. Okay. By all means, then, you know, there's no need to come back to her. Right. So this is a really, really good moment for me to say this. Folks, there are only 24 hours in every single person's day, regardless of country, religion, class, <laughs> background, only 24 hours in every single person's day. And some of us more than others need our beauty sleep. So I know that I can't uh, engage with this kind of intentionality with everybody who disagrees with me. That's why it's really important that you ask yourself, on what issue do I feel so passionate that if I did hear disagreement, I would want to try, try and change that person's mind. You're not going into this to change their mind. You're going into this to glean more information and to humanize yourself. But let's face it, there are some issues, racism, for example, in which you may feel like, no, 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 Irshad, I'm not just going to engage that person and indulge their misguided point of view. I'm going to try to change their mind, damn it, because they're wrong. Great. All the more reason to listen first, because if you don't, and you just bombard them with your facts and your logic, which may indeed be right, but you bombard them, you become a bulldozer, they will only dig their heels in deeper, become more defensive, feel humiliated, and likely not only not change their mind, but also um, become that much more invested in their point of view. So again, Jan, you know, if this woman believes in conspiracy theories, let's say, and I don't know that she does, I don't know her, but if she does, eh, I don't know that you want to worry about whether to rehabilitate that friendship. You've got better things to do, you know, with your limited time every day, mm -hmm. right? But if in a different case with a different friend, um, there's something that comes up that you feel they're just spewing rubbish, ask yourself, if I simply respond that way, do I have a hope of them hearing me? Am I giving them any incentive to hear me? It's an important question to ask. One thing I'm just a little interested in what you think. I mean, with, when I'm thinking about it now, with my best friends, 
we're very straight with each other because it's a sort of an yes. underlying trust that we love each other and that you know and and also they're the ones who tend to have a certain resilience that they're not easily sort of take offense uh -huh. or so and in a way i we fostered that in uh in the sense that you know we have to say to each other well look you know give me your feedback and give it me straight don't don't you know soft soap it or pussyfoot around just give it me straight because that's what i want and even if i disagree i'm going to accept that that's you know we, we sort of have an agreement that we want each other's raw totally honest uh reactions because that's what we're most interested mm -hmm. in but and, and in a way right. when, when you set that up and in a way so yeah. i say look you tell me it's straight because that's what i want to hear and i'm not going to judge yeah. you for i'm not going to be angry if i don't agree or if i think you've been rude or whatever i really want to hear and if you've got critical feedback i really want to hear it and you know, don't worry, I can right. take it, you know. So, and, and I think that's nice because yeah. then you get to a point where with those friendships, we've got open totally, you know, you don't have to think about it or worry or push it and you get everything straight without going around the houses. Right. Which, by the way, when I lived in Sweden and Holland, they say, God, you English people go all around the houses when you're talking. Why don't you just say what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> get to the point, right? You get to the point. Straight yeah. in, even if they don't know you well and say, bang, oh, I think you've got, you've got this wrong. Boom. But it's right. okay. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. And again, you know, in a different culture, it may, uh, it, you may be uh, uh, better to use that straightforward approach than, than not. But um, here's one thing I've learned about human beings. And then, Jan, I'll let you go to uh, finish up this seminar. One thing I've learned about human beings is we're human. Hmm. By which I mean, no matter how stoic we think we are, no matter how convinced we've persuaded ourselves to be that I can take it. I'm strong. I'm, you know, I'm an adult. We are first and foremost, a bundle of feelings. And um, that often surprises people. Um, and I suspect that's why your friend has not come back to try and finish up the first conversation with you. She may be ashamed uh, about her reaction. Um, she may be, you know, confused about why, even though she told you and she agreed that, yeah, we're going to be straight with each other, why she can't handle how straight you were with her. So um, I've had to learn empathy, Jan, uh, towards um, the humanity that we all have. And that doesn't mean I have to go back and apologize, um, but it does mean that I recognize that at the end of the day, people, um, you know, are more sensitive uh, than even they let on, uh, which is why uh, approaching any issue, but especially uh, emotional issues with grace, by which I mean suspending your belief about who does and doesn't deserve your patience, Approaching it with grace is usually uh, the most effective and, for that matter, uh, safest way to go, especially if you're trying to work with that person on something as the two other uh, participants uh, were in their you know, workplaces. I think I agree. I would say I, agree. I think you're right. Usually I just say that people are different. So there are exceptions. And if you get to know someone well, I mean, I, that's one of my best, my absolute best friend, probably. He, when he thinks I'm done, he just goes for me. He will shout and say, you're mad, man. You're crazy. What the hell are you doing? You idiot. You completely messed this up. And, and actually, when he does that, it makes me feel really good. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I so it's just, 
I'd say that I agree with you. It's like the rule. It's a rule, but there are occasional exceptions. <laughs> and sometimes the exceptions like you who really can't take it, they are the exceptions. Whereas, you know, the sensitivity of us human beings is more the rule, yeah. right? So again, you know, feel free to experiment. Yeah, yeah, you, sure. I, people are having to leave. So thank you okay. very much for uh, contributing. Awesome. Okay. Now, for those who can't stick around just for another 10 minutes, uh, first of all, Neil, are you amenable to me extending this for just That's another no 10 minutes? That's no problem at all. Okay, great. I want to show you a four-minute video in which a conversation where the moral courage method is applied uh, actually achieved what uh, it was meant to achieve. Now, let me just set it up. The video features two young people. One of them is a former student of mine. Genesis, the woman in the video, is a um, African-American uh, hip hop artist who uh, really opposes, passionately opposes the slavery era flag uh, that the US South used to fly. Um, it's called the Confederate, Confederate battle emblem. She hugely opposes it. And she does something inflammatory as a protest that then gets her a ton of hate mail on social media. And as she's scrolling, scrolling through the hate mail, she realizes that somebody who she used to know, a guy named Lewis, um, she hadn't seen in 25 years, never talked to him since then. They were, you know, wee children uh, in kindergarten. Um, but she didn't, she hasn't known him since then. And he wrote to her to say, you shouldn't have done what you did. Um, you know, and he supports the Confederate battle flag. And he has every reason to because his identity is tied to it. He uh, belongs to a group called the Sons of Confederate Veterans, uh, who are descended, uh, people like him, who are descended from uh, soldiers in the U.S. South who fought on the side of the South in the American Civil War. And yet, Genesis, her grandfather was killed, murdered by the KKK. So you can see how emotions are bound up on this question of whether the Confederate flag uh, is to be replaced or whether it is to be allowed to continue to fly. I want you to pay close attention as we watch this video of Lewis and Genesis engaging one another. I want you to pay close attention to all that Genesis does. And we'll start off in the video by just setting this up so that you've got the full picture of what brought her to the conversation in the first place. It's only four minutes. Let's roll, Neil. Notice that something happened to, uh, to Lewis during that conversation. And I'm only giving you the highlights of the conversation. It was longer, obviously, than four minutes, right? I asked him afterwards, since our cameras for Moral Courage TV were rolling, I asked him afterwards, what happened? What, what changed with you? And he said, I never expected to have respect. What do you mean? I said. And he replied that nobody on Genesis's side of the issue has ever asked him why he believes what he believes in a way 
that is not judgmental. Do you know what I did after that? I looked into the word respect. It comes from the Latin, respectate. I'm pointing to my glasses, respectate, look again. It means don't take the first impression that you have of someone as the only impression that's worth having of them. Look again, dig deeper, engage. And that's exactly what Genesis did. And she did so in so many subtle ways, not just by asking him questions, but having him and she sit at a round table, not a square one, so it's not like they were diametrically opposite. She poured water for him, a, a, you know, an obvious signal of Southern hospitality, showing him that we both share our Southern you know, heritage, right? And she started with him by asking a question. How does that flag make you feel? Not, do you know the history behind that flag? Do you know what it was meant to represent? How does it make you feel? Right here. Speak from your heart. And because she respected enough to ask him, he felt the moral obligation to ask her. And in the process, these are his words now, folks. Lewis told me that he didn't change his mind about the flag right then and there, but he realized that he cared more about Genesis than about the flag. And over the next two years, he joined the movement to replace the flag, which by the way, just this summer, the movement won. And they won by getting more people on board who used to be ardent pro-flaggers, and who now saw the wisdom of a flag that included them, but didn't exclude anybody else. So conversations can indeed lead to action. And I would argue a precondition of shared action is constructive conversation. Constructive meaning where both sides and the sides in between feel heard. That's how we get buy-in. Last point that I'm going to make, and then I promise to let you go. Somebody asked me, uh, Kat, I think it was, why is it up to people who are marginalized to be the ones to create the culture of the conversation and to do this work? I wish I could say that that we can expect uh, those in power to care enough to do the work. But by definition, people who are served by the status quo don't see a problem with the status quo. Remember, when you are an activist, you are selling a countercultural message. If you went into a shop, and the vendor berated you as ignorant and, uh, and, and insidious and evil, would you feel like buying what they're trying to sell you? 
fact of the matter is, my friends, we are in sales. Not crassly, not only commercially. This is not about transaction. This is about relationship. But make no mistake, you are selling a new vision. You've got to ensure that you're not alienating the people who could be your allies. Sometimes you have to walk away. I get it. Boy, do I get it. That's why my marriage didn't work out. I had to walk away. But more often than not, if you realize that there is a cost to walking away prematurely, you'll take the extra step because you never know what change you'll be leaving on the table if you do cut and run. Thank you so much, everybody. I appreciate not just your questions, but also your doubts, your skepticism, your, your struggle. I feel that struggle every day. I'm on the struggle bus with you. And uh, I can only hope that we will give ourselves the credit to be able to do this work more effectively than merely in frustration. Give it a try. Just give it a try. Thank you so much, Neil. Rashad, that was a really brilliant end to the day. Thank you so much. Um, there you could just you could hear the passion in your voice and that you deeply care about this topic. So I just want to share some appreciation for for taking some time out of your busy schedule to, to share that with us today. I really appreciate it. I think the audience have loved it as well. So so thank you very much. And I appreciate before that. you go, is there anywhere you'd like to send people online or I know you Ah uh, yes, yes, certainly. If you'd like to learn more um, about moral courage um, and how, you know, it can be applied in business, communities, uh, in, uh, in schools, simply go to moralcourage.com and hit the learn tab at the very top. By the way, I'm soon going to be coming out with an online uh, course fully produced. So it won't be live. It'll be asynchronous. Um, and part of my aspiration for this course is to develop a global network of moral courage mentors who then uh, come back to their own communities um, and teach how to resolve conflict and tension through the moral courage method. If anybody is interested, again, go to moralcourage.com, uh, click on the learn tab at the top and scroll down to communities. And you'll read a little bit more about it and feel free, of course, uh, to email my team uh, if you would be interested in taking the course, it is not yet uh, released. I'm putting the finishing touches on it now. And uh, probably by the end of January, um, it will be open for people who uh, wish to investigate further. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. Blessings That's to all. Michelle. Thank you very much. And a huge thank you for everybody for tuning in today and taking time out of your Sunday to, to learn about these important issues. And I just wish you all the best. And I'll see you guys later. This episode is brought to you by the Weekend University's Day on Human Nature online conference, taking place on Sunday, December 19th, 2021. 
This will be a full day of interactive talks with leading psychologists, professors and neuroscientists exploring the hidden forces that drive human behaviour. In the first talk, Dr. Graham Music will discuss the surprising links between attachment patterns, neurobiology and altruism, and how you can use these insights to create more well-being in day-to-day life. The second lecture from Cambridge neuroscientist Dr. Hannah Critchlow will explore what the latest neuroscience research reveals about how much free will we really have, and what you can do to consciously shape a better future, both for yourself and the wider world. And the final talk will be from Dr. Nancy Segal, who will speak on how the latest research in twin studies might finally help us resolve the nature versus nurture debate. By attending live, you can interact with world-class speakers and leading academics in real time, get your questions answered in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, and get lifetime access to the recordings and all available materials from the sessions. Additionally, the Weekend University guarantees an excellent learning experience. Therefore, if you attend and aren't fully satisfied with your experience, you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash human dash nature dash 2021. That's bit.ly forward slash human dash nature dash 2021. And use the discount code POD when registering. That's POD when registering, all one word. You can also find the link and the discount code in the show notes for this episode.